I went to, I went as a guest for you at one time and uh, someone gave me a very flowery introduction and they said, would you please stand up, Don? I said, I am standing up. <laughs> well, uh, thanks very much for having us here. My name's Don and uh, lovely to see so many people. Uh, I'm a little bit rusty. I haven't done much of this sort of thing for uh, quite some time because I've retired about seven years ago. But it's just wonderful to be here amongst uh, my friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's uh, just marvellous to be here. Uh, I was saying in the car coming along today just to sort of uh, quote somebody else I once heard speak. Uh, you know, it's been so long since I've talked at a group like this. Uh, but I remember a fellow introducing himself one night and he said, I feel like, uh, I feel like uh, Elizabeth Taylor's fifth husband. Uh, I know what to do, but I'm not sure how to make it interesting. You know? <laughs> 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 now, I'm here for one reason only, and that's uh, that I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I can remember uh, days gone by where... Uh, uh, we were up Elizabeth Street there a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we were in Melbourne, and uh, uh, there was a little place called the XL Cafe. It used to be just down the road here in Elizabeth Street. I notice it's not there anymore, but uh, I used to come in. I was living at St Kilda at the time, and uh, I was at the height of my, uh, my uh, bad drinking period, and I still don't remember where I lived in St Kilda. I know it was just off Punt Road somewhere, and honest to God, I don't know where I'd been living or what the name of the street was, but uh, I used to come in... Uh, all the way in here and I'd uh, drink at the hotel in town here on Elizabeth Street and I used to have a feed, if ever I did have a feed, at this little cafe down there. And I remember the Greek people uh, trying to talk to me and sort of tell me that there was a better way of living than doing what I was doing and I don't know why they said that because I wore a collar and a tie and a suit and, you know, all this sort of stuff and uh, I had a job and all that, you know, I didn't know what they were getting at but uh, anyway, that was later on the, down the track but... I started my drinking uh, at around about 14 or nearly 15 years of age and it was after a bike race in a little town uh, called Lockhart, some uh, 40 mile away from the town of Wagga Wagga and as we sprinted down the main street uh, uh, there was a wheel separating first, second and third and I'd run third in this pretty big bike race and won a few, uh, few dollars or a few pounds in those days and uh, I took the boys down to the pub for a drink uh, because uh, they all drank, they were older than me and I liked older company, I didn't really mix with people my age and uh, I discovered something that night, I got drunk for the very first time in my life and uh, so I knew all about alcohol by now and uh, I uh, sort of made a decision that uh, when I drank the next time I just wouldn't drink uh, too much and uh, I wouldn't get drunk again. Now I was a sprinter, not a stayer, both on the bike and uh, also in the drinking uh, career because uh, they were famous last words for me and every time from there on in that I uh, had anything to do with alcohol I'd usually finish up in the same situation drunk again and uh, my mates, uh, they sort of felt that uh, they used to say peculiar things to me like you can't drink and I'd say, well what do they mean I can't drink? I drank more than they did, you know and what do they mean I can't drink? but of course uh, what they really were giving me the warning signs in those early days of Don, you're a fellow who shouldn't drink now, I came from a family where there was no drinking. My mother never drank, smoked, swore, or went to church. Uh, my father, uh, although my mum and dad were divorced, uh, he wasn't a drinker and there was no one really in the family who was. But uh, I took it like a duck to water and, uh, and away I went. And uh, by the time I was 18 years of age, I was in a pretty desperate state and uh, uh, I used to get in the uh, what I know now to be the horrors and uh, I used to... Uh, find that uh, I'd have to leave the light on of a night time because uh, there used to be a guy used to come in in the middle of the night uh, I'd wake up and uh, 
He'd be standing at the side of my bed and he'd have a hat pulled down over his eyes and his collar turned up and a great big carving knife and he'd, uh, he'd, uh, was going to stab me. And uh, uh, I'd, I'd sort of wake up and uh, my heart would sort of stop and, uh, you know, terrible business. So being an alcoholic, I found out how to fix that. I used to take my bottle of brandy and uh, I'd hide it under the pillow before I went out drinking. And, of course, when I came home for night time, as long as I left the light on, it would be all right, and I could uh, reach under the uh, the pillow and get my bottle of brandy out, pull the blankets over my head, and uh, he couldn't sort of get me, you know. And this is 18 years of age. Uh, by the time I'm 19, uh, I had a sort of a half-hearted suicide attempt. Uh, I was um, very negative. Everything was negative. I was full of, uh, full of hate and resentment and uh, fear and all these things. Uh, my uh, my sport had gone by the wayside by now and uh, I'd hung the bike up uh, drinking was everything to me and uh, uh, my friends who uh, kept reminding me that I shouldn't drink I got rid of them because uh, they interfered with my drinking and uh, uh, I found myself uh, in a pretty bad way and uh, uh, I sat on the end of the bed this particular night and I, uh, I've got, I managed to kick the thong off uh, it wasn't too easy to do and I had this uh, shotgun single barrel shotgun very luckily it had a very long barrel and I'm sitting on the end of the bed I've got the uh, the barrel in my mouth and I'm trying to pull the trigger with my big toe I've got a bottle of brandy in one hand, the glass in the other and uh, goodbye cruel world and this is the end of this and uh, I was about to pull the trigger and something said to me, you know Don if you pull this trigger you've had your last drink gee I said that's a bit serious <laughs> <laughs> so I very carefully unloaded the gun and uh, put it back under the bed and went out and got another bottle of brandy. Now, I wasn't travelling too well at this stage of the game, of course, and uh, I was pretty crook. And uh, it was round about then that my stepfather, the man who uh, in the finish was the guy who had saved my life, uh, he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. My mother had married this fellow. He was a town drunk, a man who once played football for the Melbourne Football Club, who'd won the Morris Medal up in the little town of Yarrawonga. And uh, here he was, the town drunk of the, uh, the city of Wagga Wagga. And uh, he was now sober and in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, between he and the local doctor, they uh, got their heads together. There was a bit of collusion went on and they shanghaied me into a hospital in Sydney, which was the first hospital ever to treat alcoholics in Australia in the private uh, uh, hospital setup. It was a place called Hyderbury Hospital and run by a lady called... Uh, uh, what was her name? Oh, gee, I'm a bit of a mental bank there. <laughs> run by dear old matron Kessel, who was not an alcoholic herself, but she'd want to get up early in the morning to uh, put one over her. Her offside was a man called Dr Sylvester Minogue. And Minogue was uh, a psychiatrist, a Macquarie Street psychiatrist, and he used to come and visit us in this hospital, and uh, he never used to come as a psychiatrist to see us. He came there as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember uh, I'd only been in there about a week, and it wasn't too well and I sat on one side of the desk in his office and he sat on the other side and he just looked at me and he said uh, you know Don you're an alcoholic well they never called me foul mouth for nothing and I gave this bloke a bit of a serve and told him exactly what I was and he never blinked an eyelid and I thought well I've got to give this fellow an explanation I said well look doc I said it's this way I said you know where I come from I said you know I'm old jock's uh, stepson I live in Wagga and uh, I said, you know, he's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I said, we've got a 24-hour restaurant, service station, motel and cafe up there and, of course, I said, we get all these uh, Alcoholics Anonymous members who come in at all hours of the, uh, the night and the morning because they can't sleep and I said, I sit down sometimes and have cups of coffee with them and I said, if I sound a little bit alcoholic because I mix with these people. 
<laughs> he raised, raised his eyes a bit and he said, son, you tell that to another alcoholic and he'll greet you, greet you as a long lost brother. And uh, so here I am sitting there and, and he told me I was an alcoholic so I told him what I thought of him and I went back to my room and I went on a hunger strike for three days and I bet that kept him up nights worrying about me. <laughs> and I was in that hospital for six weeks and uh, that was all based on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I used to go for their walks with them around the block. They used to go out for walks every day and I'd walk very much behind the group because I didn't want the neighbours to think that I was one of them, you know. <laughs> so they'd uh, put me on this train to go down to hospital, of course, and six weeks went by. I drank the day before they discharged me and uh, here I am spewing in the hand basin at uh, about 7 o'clock in the morning and I felt the presence of a shadow behind me and I looked around and sure enough there's Matron Kessel standing behind me and she said, uh, you had to find out for yourself, didn't you? And of course I told her what I thought of her too and, and of course I arrived back in Wagga, the same people who put me on the train six weeks earlier, uh, they met me and greeted me coming home six weeks later and I'm drunker when I come home than what I was when I went down. I had about four more years of drinking to go and I'd been to lots of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I firstly really went to... Uh, keep an eye on this stepfather of mine because if he hurt my mother uh, I'd kill him and uh, I was also uh, introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in Hyderabad Hospital and again I went to their meetings and I did exactly what the people told me, I listened for the differences not the similarities and there were plenty of differences and uh, there were a lot of similarities too but people would say and of course my wife has left me, well there you are how can I be alcoholic, I'm not even married Never even had a girlfriend, you know. And I found plenty of differences and, uh, and uh, really I didn't want to stop drinking anyway. When I came home, I, I had a, a, quite a respect for AA because I, I wasn't a dill. I knew it worked and I, I'd seen miracles take place with people, some that I even drank with and knew. And uh, I had a great deal of respect for Alcoholics Anonymous and so I used to uh, grace them with my presence and I'd take my bottle of uh, sweet cherry with me and I'd hide it out uh, in the geraniums outside the front door and... I'd whip in and out uh, between speakers and have a bit of a gargle because when I drank, you see, I was invisible. People didn't know and uh, all this sort of thing. So I'd had a fair contact with Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but anyway, uh, of course, it was a one-way ticket and down she went and it does that way thing for any alcoholic. If you're alcoholic and you keep drinking, of course, the tree is going to get worse because it's a disease, a progressive disease, and it progressed in me too. And uh, I uh, now got to the stage where I was trying to give the grog away and I didn't need help to do it. I have very strong will and uh, uh, I just would stop doing it and I managed to do that sometimes. And I wouldn't drink and the very mere fact that I didn't drink, I'd go out and have a drink to celebrate the fact I didn't drink anymore. And uh, this went on and off, you know. And So uh, <coughs> it got to be a stage one night where uh, I'd saved up some money. I wasn't drinking. I'd had a few months off the grog. And my stepfather said, look, he said, if you can save 300 pounds, I'll put in 300 pounds and between us we'll buy a brand new utility. And I said, gee, that would be a good idea. So I saved the 300 up through not drinking and he put in 300 and we bought this lovely uh, uh, Holden Ute and it was, I was so proud of it and it had my name written on the side and that was wonderful. And here I was washing it for about the fifth time and the third day I had it and uh, I noticed this little trap door and I hadn't had a drink by now for I think it was about four or five months. And this little trap door at the back and I wondered what it was and I opened it up and it was where the spare tyre went. And my mind said to me, uh, you know, you could probably fit about four bottles of McWilliams cream sherry in here. <laughs> or maybe six. 
No, perhaps only five, so I bought six anyway. <laughs> Not to drink them, just to see if they'd fit in there. <laughs> and stuff me days, I had one left over. So you couldn't waste it. And so I had the first drink that I'd had uh, in about four months. I rang a mate of mine and uh, I was pretty drunk because I'd been drinking all day by now. I didn't stop at the uh, bottle of sherry. And uh, just because he was my mate, he came with me, insisted on coming with me uh, to uh, go over to the Black Swan Hotel over the bridge over the Murrumbidgee River at North Wagga. I insisted on driving because I always drove better when I drank. And uh, I'm the guy who mounted the footpath on the wrong side of the bridge, hit the 12-year-old boy with the mo- on, the, on the push bike, and very, very fortunate I didn't kill the boy, didn't even hurt him. I bent the front wheel of his bike a bit. I'm told even to this day I can't remember, and that's, that's no exaggeration, I really don't. But I believe the people who told me, including the police, I apparently when I hit the kid, jumped out of the car, and I was going to give the kid a hide, and he was only 12, he was about my size, because I didn't like picking on bigger blokes, and I was going to give this bloke a hiding because he should have been home in bed. It had nothing to do with my drinking. This stuff I'm not proud of, of course, but this is just the history of my drinking. And it was around about that stage, uh, the police did me a bit of a favour. We used to feed them full of coffee and steak sandwiches in this 24-hour survey we had. Uh, when they finally caught up with me, the big sergeant said, look, Don, I'll give you a break. He said, I shouldn't, but I will. He said, you could have killed this boy. And he said... Uh, if ever I see you driving a car again under the influence of alcohol, he said, I'm going to lock you up in the slammer. Now, I'd been there a couple of times before. Not the best motel in the town. Uh, the birds are chirping, the sun's shining, you're spewing. You're looking for a, a drink and uh, they got you locked up. It's not a real nice place to be. And it was only then that my stepfather, who was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was only then that he actually said for the first time in his life anything about my drinking. And he said, son, if you want a drink, you don't work here. You work here, you don't drink. And I said, I'll show you your mug. And so I did it the old white knuckle way again. I didn't drink. And I went six months without drinking. I didn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I, I didn't need that. I just wouldn't drink anymore. Now, the old willpower method, you know, and anyone who thinks that alcoholics have got problems with willpower, you're absolutely dead right. It's got nothing to do with weak willpower. It's got to do with strong willpower. That's what kills alcoholics. I will not give in. I will not seek help. I will not go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I will beat the booze on my own. I will show you. And so the white knuckle method, I didn't drink. And uh, I got irritable and restless and cranky and grumpy and all these things, you know. And uh, But I still didn't drink, you know. And I got through Christmas Day and I hadn't had a drink. It was now Boxing Day. And I hadn't had a drink for six months. But I used to dream about it, smell it, taste it, you know, when I wasn't drinking it. And I never was going to drink it again. But if I did, I'd be right because I've proved that I didn't, uh, didn't drink. I, I, I'd given it away. Anyway, uh, uh, the bright idea came, well, uh, I might as well just go and have one. I'll just go and have one. And so I went in and uh, I used to work the night shift at the, uh, the servo. And I went in at five o'clock in the morning and uh, the William Farrer Hotel was open. And, uh, and I went in. And I had my first drink for six months. And it was 18 and a half hours later that they poured me out of a cab. Some kind-hearted uh, friend of mine had put me in the cab and sent me home. And I came to sitting on the front steps of the service station. And the only friend I had in this world, the only friend I wanted in this world, was my black Labrador dog. And there it was limping. Because some mongrel had kicked it in the guts. And I was the only one that was there. Why do I hurt the people I love? 
I'm vomiting blood, which was a pretty good trick of mine. It seemed to do that to me. I used to think that it uh, had something to do with Nick the Greek, you know, with the steak sandwich. You know, never eat at Nick's because you get crook, you know. But it had something to do with when I drank, it, uh, it upset the whole system pretty well. Obviously, there was something wrong there. And uh, here I am with a hot bottle of beer and uh, the dog's limping and I'm sitting there trying to get this hot bottle of beer into me and I'm bringing it up as fast as I can get it down. And something sort of said to me up here, you know, just the penny must have dropped at that stage. It said, uh, Don, do you think, do you think it's possible that you may have just a slight problem with alcohol? Well, there was an AA meeting the next night, Wednesday night again up at St Joseph's Hall in Wagga. And uh, somehow or another I got through the day and uh, I went to this meeting with my stepfather. Now, that particular night, and you can't explain this sort of thing, I can't, because I've seen it happen thousands of times. I don't know why the penny drops or why it dropped with me. But I sat in that AA meeting this night and I actually sat there and I heard for the first time somebody said, if you don't have the first drink, you cannot get drunk. Now, why didn't someone tell me that earlier in the piece? I can't understand this, you know. But if you don't have the first drink, you can't get drunk. Well, of course you can't. If you don't have the first drink, you couldn't get drunk. And so uh, maybe, just maybe, it might work for me. Uh, all you people, you weren't half as smart as me, you know. Really, you weren't. I mean, you were nice people, but, you know, I obviously I knew what was wrong with you and why you drank. You weren't too bright. But, you know, if I just didn't drink, I, I, perhaps I could get through that day. Well... I got through that day and, uh, and it wasn't easy. And uh, I can remember there was an AA member, little Alan, Alan Jackson was his name, he's passed away now, he's a photographer, Alan, and a very quiet little fella. And uh, I've been sober, like, and I was doing it hard, I wasn't doing it easy because I just wasn't drinking. And I remember uh, Alan came up to me at this AA meeting this night and he, he said, Don, how long have you been sober now? I said, I think it's about five months, Alan. He said, five months. Hmm. He said, how long did you say? I said, five months. Well, he said, I want to shake your hand, Don. He said, uh, I said, what for, Alan? He said, I want to thank you for saving my life. I said, what? Saving your life? I said, it's I who should be shaking your hands for you saving my life. How did I save your life? He said, how long did you say? I said, five months. Yes, he said, I think you've been around long enough. He said, I want to thank you for saving my life. And I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, Don, I've used you as a tolerance tester. <laughs> he said, you used to come round my place of a night drunk. He said, you'd get there one o'clock in the morning, you'd knock on my door, I've got to get up to go to work at five. You'd have me make you a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. You'd eat my biscuits. All you'd want to talk about... <laughs> His I, me and my, your favourite subject. And he wins that the biscuits weren't cream biscuits. <laughs> and he said, I used to sit there clenching me teeth, you know. If I pick a drink up, I'm going to be like him. <laughs> so I didn't get a hell of a lot, didn't get a hell of a lot of sympathy. But anyway, I struggled through those early days of sobriety, as we all do. It's not easy. Uh, well, it isn't easy for most of us anyway, and it wasn't easy for me. And I was a bit fortunate we, we lived this business that the family had was seven miles out of town. And many times uh, I can remember uh, just all of a sudden just going mad, had a violent temper, and I'd just go absolutely mad, storm out of the survey. This would be, you know, one o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock at night or something, and it would be raining and freezing cold, and I'd walk into Wagga to get drunk, you know. And I'd get about two or three miles down the road, and I'd be freezing cold, and I'd come back, I'll get drunk tomorrow. <laughs> 
But then when I'd wake up in the morning and I wasn't drunk, I'd say, gee whiz, you know, I didn't get drunk. Wasn't that something, you know? And I'd somehow get through the day, you know? So I was doing all right. I wasn't drinking. But as I got stayed sober for a period of time, I wasn't drinking, but I wasn't happy either. And I would have been happy if the world just had got on board and done what I wanted them to. But, uh, you know, they didn't seem to do this and, uh, you know... And so I, I had a sort of frame of mind. Now, this frame of mind, I didn't actually write this, but I've accumulated this one along the way. And I was just going through a few papers there yesterday just to see what I could talk about tonight. And I thought you might be interested in this. You probably have heard this, but some of you may not have. And this is the, uh, the steps of the program in reverse, called tongue-in-cheek. Now, you know, there's more to this program than just not drinking. Uh, just not drinking uh, doesn't ensure the fact that I... I've got a better chance of uh, not picking one up because if I stay the same as I am, then uh, the obvious thing is going to happen. I'm going to have a relapse. And there's three things wrong with the alcoholic, three things wrong with me, and in my observation of other alcoholics in the years that I worked in the field of alcoholism, there's three things wrong with us. It's no, not, no fault of mine that I am an alcoholic. Physically, I'm allergic to the stuff. And as Pizza Bill used to say, people said to him, what do you mean allergic, Bill? Well, he said, when I drink, I break out in spots. He said, you do? What kind of spots? Well, he said, uh, Alice Springs, Darwin, Bansdale, all kinds of spots. So physically, through no fault of my own, I'm allergic to the stuff. And I didn't know that. (coughs) But my track record uh, proves that to be true. But not only am I allergic to it, mentally, if I drink... And if any alcoholic drinks, mentally, I can't cope with the stuff. And spiritually, I became, perhaps like you, an empty shell where there was nothing to have faith in. There was no God if there was. Well, he was crook on me and I was pretty crook on him too. And least of all, did I have faith in myself. So here I am, uh, an empty shell and a fair amount of strife. Physically, mentally and and spiritually very, very sick. Now, I wasn't drinking... And I wasn't going to drink. I was still doing it the white knuckle way. But as I stayed sober, I, I began to become aware of a lot of pain and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I was a square peg in a round hole. I often describe the alcoholic personality. And, you know, this is me if I don't go to meetings and if I don't work the program. It's still me today because my disease still lives within me. It wants to take my life. It will if it's got the chance. And it's up to me, if I don't want that to happen, to do something about it. And this is where the wonderful 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous comes in. If I do what I need to do via this program, it's not only proven that it's working for me, but as I observe other people who work this program, uh, what happens is that this three-fold problem that we've got, uh, I can tackle this with the three-pronged approach of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which tackles the physical. I don't drink and your encouragement helps me to stay sober on a daily basis. If I don't drink mentally, I come good, providing I apply the program to myself. And spiritually, I alone can do this, but I'm not doing it alone. I'm doing it through the power of this program and the power of the higher power, which I'll talk about later because I was pretty crook on him and I wasn't going to do it that way anyway. But today, he's my mate, you know. But I'd just like to read this to you because this was the condition of mind that I had and uh, there just might be the odd one of you here that might identify with this. And this is uh, the 12 steps in reverse. Step one. I decided I could handle alcohol if other people would just quit trying to run my life. 
Step two, I firmly believe there's no greater power than myself and anyone who says it isn't so is insane. (laughs) Step three, I made a decision to remove my will and my life from God who didn't understand me anyway. (laughs) Step four, I made a searching and thorough moral inventory of everyone I knew. (laughs) So they couldn't fool me and take advantage of my good nature. (laughs) Step five, I sought these people out and tried to uh, get them to admit to me by God the exact nature of their defects of character. (laughs) Step step six, I became willing to help these people get rid of their defects of character. Step seven, I became humble enough to ask these people to remove their shortcomings. Step eight, I made a list of all the people who'd harmed me and waited patiently for a chance to get even with them all. (laughs) Step nine, I got even with these people whenever possible, except when to do so would get me into trouble also. (laughs) Step ten, I continued to take everybody's inventory And when they were wrong, which was most of the time, promptly made them admit it. Step 11, I sought through concentration of my willpower to get God, who didn't understand me anyway, to see that my ideas were best and that he ought to give me the power to carry them out. And step 12, I have maintained my drunkenness for 25 years with these steps and can thoroughly recommend them to other alcoholics who don't want to lose their hard-earned status as drunks but wish to be left alone to practice intemperance in everything they do for the rest of their days. Right? So that's how it was for me anyway. And I wasn't drinking and I didn't want to drink. And I rather enjoyed the fact I didn't drink, but my head was in a mess. My mind was in a mess and I was full of hatred and resentment. I was full of guilt over the things that kept coming back to me. Interesting thing, you know, I had a lady once, uh, well, I didn't have a lady. <laughs> no, I won't say anything about that. Uh, no. <laughs> a friend of mine in Alcoholics Anonymous and she said, Don, I had to do the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, she said, because I got this far down the track before and I relapsed because I didn't work the steps of the program. I said, why didn't you work the steps of the program? She said, I couldn't, I was too sick. Now that might sound silly, but that's exactly how I was. I was too sick to do this. And the older people around Alcoholics Anonymous in those days used to say things like, don't drink today, grab hold of that first step, we're powerless over alcohol, our lives have become unmanageable and if you don't drink for long enough, you'll find that you'll need to do more than just not drink, if that makes any sense to what I'm telling you people. Because that's exactly how it happened to me. I got to the stage where I'd, I'd managed not to drink but now if I wanted to stay sober, I had to do something about myself. Now I'd been used to all my life, I had trained myself to justifying what I was doing and my existence, my drinking. I mean, I used to have the toy box, this famous toy box I talk about. And I had this accumulation of all these toys I'd accumulated over the years. My mother and father were divorced and he was a mongrel. Eh? And that was good, I used to get drunk on that one. And I had all these things that I used to, and there's nothing I love more than to withdraw. <laughs> withdraw to the cave <laughs> and close the door with my bottle of brandy and my glass. I always drank with a glass, I was a top, you know. <laughs> and I'd spread my, I'd empty my toy box on the floor and I'd play with my toy box and it was wonderful. And you mugs here at AA were saying, if you want to stay sober, you've got to get rid of the toy box. You've got to unload all this stuff, get rid of it. 
And you know, the one thing, though, there was a dirty word someone said to me one time, responsibility. It was up to me to take responsibility for my behaviour. And there was lots of my behaviour that I felt very, very guilty about. And there was stuff in that program that talked about going back to the people I'd harmed and making amends for the wrong that I'd done. Gee, that was a bit rough. You know, how could I do that? I mean, what would they think of me? And to give you an example of that, I was a great party crasher. I never ever got uh, invited to parties, but I could see, have a look out for a nose. I could smell grog, and I could smell it miles away, you know. And I'd find myself at some of these flash uh, parties around the town. Imagine me at a flash party, you know. And I'd find myself at these uh, places, particularly for Sunday night. The Catholic Church used to run a lot of these house parties. And uh, I wasn't Catholic, but that didn't matter, you know. I'd go along to these places, and my dear friend, and he's also passed away, Father Joe Salmon, Catholic priest, and he'd be sitting here, and he'd be counting the entrance money, and I used to sit there and help him, you know. That's one thing I haven't made amends for either, yet, but I must <laughs> do something about it. But anyway, uh, I remember we in this very flash house in Wagga this night, and uh, I'd put on a turn, which wasn't unusual, and uh, they'd asked me to leave, and who was I anyway? What was I doing there? And as I left, I was very... Uh, very put out being asked to leave and as I went out uh, it was a very nice home and uh, there was this lovely big oak sideboard and on the sideboard was this lovely crystal decanter with uh, a drop of the doings in it and so as I went out I grabbed this crystal decanter and so drunk as I was I sat out in the uh, in the gutter and uh, I couldn't pull the cork I was too drunk so I smashed it on the footpath put a hanky over it and I drank the remains of this uh, thing and left the uh, remains of the bottle in the uh, in the gutter. And it was some years later, it was about two or three years later when I was trying to make amends to the people I'd harmed. I went to someone I knew who lived next door to this house and it was one of the occasions I remembered what had happened. And I, I told this fellow the story. I said, look, I want to go next door and make amends to these people. Oh, Don, he said, I don't know if that's a good idea. He said, that crystal decanter, he said, the police are still looking for the bloke who did that. He said, that crystal decanter was 150 years old. Oh, gee, I said, it could have been worse. It could have been a new one. (laughs) (coughs) So while I was thinking about whether I should go or not, (laughs) unlucky as anything, these old folk passed away, so I wasn't able to go and say sorry. (laughs) Thank goodness for that. All right. So, okay, so what I'm getting at is that the time came when I had to do something about uh, staying well, and that meant that I had to do something about working this program if I wanted to stay well. Where could I start? And I said, well, Don, I don't know where you're going to start, but maybe you can start by dropping that foul language that you're talking all the time. Every word was, you know, the words. Uh, I had to do that sort of thing. It was part of the old bravado act, you know. But, Don, it's time you cleaned up your act. Maybe start with that, you know. And I looked around at people in AA who were sober and, and I tried to pick out the good things, the things that I liked in these people. I tried not to take their inventory, but I tried to... Uh, copy, if you like, some of the good things they did and the way they acted, you know. Clean myself up, tidy myself up, have a shave, you know, uh, dress neatly, the, uh, the just for the day card, you know, all that type of stuff, you know. And uh, that's what I've tried to practice along the way. I'm going to uh, have to slow down a bit because I, uh, I'll finish up very soon. But there's a couple of things here I want to read you. And I've learned some wonderful things in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, there was a guy who once saved my life, I won't go into that, uh, that was in sobriety. And I want to tell you something for anyone who might be new around. Just because you don't drink doesn't mean to say life's going to get easier. You know, I've had worse things happen. In fact, I'll be honest with you and tell you, I have done some worse things in sobriety 
than ever I did in my drinking. You know, it's called human nature. And that's not a copy, it's the truth. I, I, I'm powerless over human nature. My life's unmanageable. You know, that's not a copy, that's the truth. And that's what I live with every day of my life. I'm a human being who, you know, when, when an alcoholic gets, uh, gets sober, puts the glass down, it's a bit like a new foal that's just been born, you know. You try and stand on your feet and you're a little bit wobbly and the next thing, head over turkey you go. I wonder why. Because I haven't handled this kind of way of living uh, without booze inside me and of course I'm going to make mistakes. And I made plenty in sobriety. But I can remember a man in sobriety and he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and he's still a very good friend of mine and uh, I've been sober a lot longer than he has but you to get a lot of wisdom around AA and this man actually saved my life. I won't go into the story. But I said to him, I said, you know, I cannot repay you for what you've done for me. And he said, Don, the only repayment I want, he said, I want you to promise me that at the end of every day, before you go to sleep of the night time, ask yourself a question. What good thing have I done for somebody else today? You know? A lot of wisdom in that man. He didn't been around AA very long at the time either. But this is all about this program, taking my mind off I, me and my and thinking of somebody else for change. You know, the old selfish Don, you know what I mean? This is called work in the program as I see it, you know? And it's a wonderful program of Alcoholics Anonymous and I see miracles. I met a miracle here tonight. The lady just said to me, she said, you don't recognise me, do you? I said, I'm sorry, I don't. She told me a name. Then I recognised her. And if she doesn't look 30 years younger than she looked when I saw her last time, I'll go, hey, you know? This is a miracle working program, Alcoholics Anonymous. We are the most privileged people in the whole wide world. The other man who did save my life, and I'd just like to read this to you, and every time I do I burst into tears, I'll try not to do that. Hey, I'm not afraid to cry today either. You know, you people have taught me to love and to cry and to, and to feel and all these kind of things. This man uh, lived in the town of Wagga Wagga. He married my mother, this fella. He was a town drunk. He won the Morris Medal up in uh, Yarrawonga for the football uh, club up there around about 1936, 37. The talent scouts got him. They brought him down. He played for Melbourne with uh, uh, Bluey Truscott and Checker Hughes and all them blokes that we're all too young to remember. And he was the man that was became my sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous and he died eventually with 45 years of sobriety under his belt. He was different, <laughs> wasn't he? <laughs> you knew him. But anyway, he wrote a piece of poetry once and I'd just like to read this to you. This bloke was the town drunk, as I said, and uh, nobody wanted to know him. This is his piece of poetry he wrote. He says, as I wander back down memory lane, I arrive at a place where it all began. A country town where I shone in fame. In work and play I learnt the game. The game of life seemed easy then until one day in this world of men I hit a hurdle that didn't bend. To begin a game was hard at first. I seemed to develop an endless thirst. The friends were many, the price paid high. My spirit rose, my ego soared to heights untold among the hordes. The shakes, the sweats, the fears at first. Remorse, self-pity, that endless thirst. It came from places I cannot tell, but sure as God it hurt like hell. And then at last the bubble burst. From the bottom of the pit a dim light appeared. Like a drowning man in a flooded stream with arms outstretched, I grasped a beam. It steered a course towards the bank. I scrambled up that long steep slope toward that light. Could it give me hope? To you, A.A., I dips me lid. My heart felt thanks for what you did. You saved my life and gave me hope. 
And best of all, you gave me love. What about a bit of poetry? Some of his other work wasn't too good. You'd read it on toilet walls and it didn't rhyme anyway, but that's, that's one of his best. <laughs> anyway, look, it's just wonderful to be here and I'm sure this weekend for you people, uh, and for me too, because I won't be here tomorrow, but I'll be here Sunday, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, this program, it's, it's a miracle-working program, as I've said before. You know, It'll work for anyone who wants to work it. And uh, I've seen people come back from the dead, and that's no exaggeration. And I was very fortunate to work in the field of alcoholism for about 20-odd years before I retired. And, uh, you know, we've seen them come in and, uh, uh, well, you know, and, and you see the people who work the program. It's just absolutely marvellous, you know. And there's another thing here. I know I'm doing a lot of reading tonight, but I will conclude on this. And uh, I don't know if there's any other words of wisdom I can give you, uh, except stick around if you're here, particularly if you're new around. Um, <coughs> I'll tell you this one, uh, and this might sound wrong. I, I don't want you to think I'm scotting. I just want to tell you what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. Someone told me when I was very early around AA, if you're fair dinkum, do what you need to do. Don't pick a drink up a day at a time. To the best of your ability, work that program there. Doors will open in your life that you never, ever knew existed. Now, I can tell you, I could go on and tell you and tell you these things that have happened to me. But I'd just like to tell you this one, and please don't misunderstand me. I've mentioned this two or three times of recent times. The year 2000, I came home from, uh, from uh, golf, and it was a couple of days before Christmas, Christmas Eve, in fact. My wife said to me, you'll have to ring Canberra, Don. There's someone from Canberra wants to talk to you. And I thought, oh, my God, someone's heard I've been mowing lawns on the side. <laughs> They're going to rip me pension off me, you know. <laughs> Guilty conscience. So I ring this dude up in Canberra, and uh, had a bit of a conversation with him and uh, um, my country, whom here I was, that well, one of the town drunks of the town of Wagga Wagga, and here it is some 40-odd years later, uh, my country of Australia presented me with a, an award called the Order of Australia Award. Now, I don't say that because I'm a smart elder or anything else. What I'm saying to you is here tonight, if you're, particularly if you're new around or it doesn't matter how long you've been around, Doors will open in your life that you didn't even know existed. And your dreams uh, and things that you never dreamt about can happen to you too, you know. You take away the grog from an alcoholic and I tell you what, uh, Elkies aren't dills. And I used to say to the doctors and the medical people I work with, you know, don't ever treat an Elkie like a dill. Don't ever play mind games with him because he'll outsmart you every time. He'll know the answer to the question before you ask him. You know, Elkies aren't dills. And if we can put that uh, glass down and leave it down with the help of this program, you know, anything is possible in your life too. And that's what makes life for me uh, very, very exciting. I will conclude because I know I'm just about going to get the gong. Uh, but I'd just like to read this to you too and I hope you'll excuse me reading these things but I, I think they're very good. I like this one. It's called AA is a spirit. It cannot be touched nor can it be completely understood. It's as wide as the world yet small enough to fit snugly into the mind and heart of man. It's brought light where only darkness dwelt. It's given hope to the helpless and help to those who yearned in despair. It's nourished forgiveness in those who know no pity. It's given strength to the weak and humility to the strong. It's given greatness to the common. It's spurred to higher goals those who strove for nothing. It's brought to the destitute a home. It's transformed sorrow into a weapon of happiness. It's given purpose to the trackless and shelter to the lost. It's taught patience to the hurried and action to the slothful. To the youth it's given vision, to the aged promise. 
to the lonely companions, to the restless rest, to the sick it's been a doctor, that the dying it's revived the desire to live, that to those who've fallen it's been a helping hand. It has no judgment against the unteachable, nor has it praise for those who learn. To the outcast it's been a family, to the childless it's, a childless it's given children, to the ignorant wisdom, to the wise tolerance. It's given to all men that which is most precious. It's given love for truth with enough left over to share with each other. That's how colleagues and others. So thanks for listening and uh, thanks for having me here. And I'm sure you're in for a wonderful weekend and I hope to, as I say, share some of it with you. And uh, well, thanks a lot. Good on you. <laughs>